0: Everybody and welcome back to Roar Lions Radio, coast to coast. This is your host tonight, Nick Pollock and I am joined by my Florida brethren, Matthew Filipovitz. How you doing tonight, Matt? Nick,
1: I am doing lovely. It was a it was a brisk and chilly 55 here today in Central Florida, and I put on a sweatshirt, and I hate myself for that.
0: And you know what? I can relate because I also wore a sweatshirt today for my brisk Seattle 45. I I think we clearly represent what what is real about the climate in the United States, and I don't think anybody had it worse than us today. No, I re- I really don't think that's possible.
1: It, it was it was it was very chilly and very cold.
0: Unlike us, though, Penn State had a pretty hot week since the last time we. Ayo,
1: started. nailed it. Um,
0: we had some some big news, to, well, you know, big-ish news to cover over the past week for Penn State. Uh, if you'll recall, last time we talked, uh, Penn State did not have a wide receivers coach. They were currently on the hunt. That is not the case anymore, as they have hired Taylor Stubblefield. First of all, fantastic name. Let's break it down.
1: Yeah, terrific name. Up there with, uh, he's going to give Mac Hippenhammer a run for best name in the receiver room. Um, I think, I think he might take it. I think, I think this might be, this might be enough to, to dethrone, uh, the next Bo Jackson.
0: Do you think it is required either by his own personal code of ethics or just by his body itself, um, that he can only grow X amount of facial hair?
1: I mean, he does have only have a little bit of stubble. I mean, I, wow, that's a great question. He has to have at least something. He can't be clean shaven. And I think if he goes like full old, like Brian Wilson from the Giants beard, I think that's just going to be a problem. So I think he kind of has to exist in this like happy medium he's in right now.
0: I do really enjoy the idea of Penn State having a Brian Wilson type beard on staff, though. So I'm going to I'm going to pack that one away in the back of my mind. And we're going to come back to that later and talk about which coach would be the best suited for that. Uh, Um, I already already have my answer. Oh
1: well, then hit me with your answer then. It's got it. I mean, Brent Pry is already already pretty close to being there, but it's got to be Sean Spencer, right? Like that would just take him to a whole new level.
0: (laughs) I I think it pretty clearly has to be Sean Spencer. Yeah,
1: that one's that's an open and shut case.
0: Though I would not mind if Tyler Bowen just showed up on camera tomorrow with a just a glorious, glorious beard. I think
1: yeah, I think he could. I think he could keep the color in it for a lot longer than Sean Spencer could, just because I think he has like what fifteen years on him. I think I think that could be a good way to go.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, So, yeah, Taylor Stubblefield uh, replacing Jared Parker, of course, who left to take over as the offensive coordinator over at West Virginia. Stubblefield, probably a name that if you've been watching Penn State for a while now, probably a name you might remember. Um, one of the arguably the best receiver in Purdue's history. Uh, he was a Blitnikoff finalist. I don't think he won it. He did not uh, win but it he, no. he did not win it, but he was the all time leader in the NCAA in receptions for a little bit. Um, Ryan Broyles of Oklahoma passed it back in 2011, but uh, still a pretty, pretty strong college playing resume. He Stuck around for a couple of years in the NFL, played with the Panthers, played with the Rams, didn't do a whole lot, played in the Canadian Football League for a while, um, and then that was that's pretty much it. And since then, he has just been bouncing all around the country. He has coached at Central Washington as a wide receivers coach. Eastern Michigan as a wide receivers coach. Illinois State for two years as a wide receivers coach. Central Michigan, again, as a wide receivers coach. New Mexico as a wide receivers coach. Wake Forest as a wide receivers coach. Two years at Utah as a wide receivers coach. For the Toronto Argonauts in the CFL, that's the team that Ricky Williams played for, fun fact, as a wide receivers coach. Air Force as a wide receivers coach for two years. Last year, Miami as a wide receivers coach. And now at Penn State that's
1: quite a resume for a guy who's still in his thirties
0: it is and it also should be noted Taylor Stubblefield the uh, Taylor Stubblefield from Yakima Washington, where my mother is from where my family is from. I think the first question that people have been asking when seeing his you know it's it's I think it's pretty common that most most average fans don't know who Taylor Stubblefield is, unless you remember from from his playing days, that is. But most probably didn't know him much as a coach before this move, especially Penn State fans, hasn't really had any other Penn State connections. And I think the first thing that jumped out in people's minds was, wow, he moves around a lot. And for Penn State, this is now Stubblefield will be their fourth receivers coach in the last four years. So I think the natural reaction was to say, well, why should we believe that this guy's going to stick around any longer than any of the last guys have? What are kind of your impressions on that front, Matt? Do you think that, I don't know, Do you are you a little worried that he's going to jump around again really quickly after this? I think I am a
1: little worried um, just because I think we need to see some stability at that position. Um, but again, receivers coach and, and a lot of those position coaches in general are something that you're, you can easily find guys around the country to fill those kind of roles. Um, so his kind of career path is is a little bit concerning, especially because I think Penn State does want to keep a guy locked in for a little bit. But with that being said, I think if he does find success here, he, he's going to um, give Franklin a reason to want to keep him around for a little while, as opposed to everywhere else. was. Nowhere was on this level of, of the caliber of program Penn State can be. So I think if he's able to succeed, this is a place that it would be really hard for him unless he gets a coordinator job uh, to to make a, what would be like a, considered a move up a rung or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that kind of brings me to the other thing uh, when you're talking about the caliber of program. And yes, Miami is is very much a step below what Penn State has been. Um, and what Miami has been recently for that matter. I think the other thing that people were concerned about was that he doesn't necessarily have the greatest recruiting pedigree. And I know that, I believe it was the Miami 247 page where there were a lot of, I don't remember, I don't know if the was actual writer. I think it was one of their actual writers mentioned it, that um, he just wasn't the greatest fit in South Florida necessarily recruiting wise, which I don't know why anyone should be surprised about that. He's from Washington. He played at Purdue. It's not like he has these deep Florida ties. So I I think there was a little bit of concern on that front. And for me, I I don't I don't see that as much of a concern because I think Franklin has built a staff that is really overall an excellent recruiting staff. I guess we don't really know much about what Kirk Shiraca will do as a recruiter, but the coordinators aren't really relied in that role relied on in that role quite as much. But I think kind of where we talked about with Phil Troutline, where the offensive line isn't always a position where you need the coach to be an ace recruiter. It kind of seems like Troutline could be that guy. I think it's okay that maybe Stubblefield taking him on, he doesn't necessarily have that reputation. But also he's never recruited with Penn State behind him. And if he is able to be as good of a teacher as it sounds like he is, and it seems like he should be with his resume, then that's the kind of guy that, you know, once he's once he proves success, eventually recruits are going to want to come play for him for that reason. So where what are you thinking about as far as him as a recruiter?
1: Yeah, I think we've seen Penn State establish uh, themselves in, you know, Florida, Texas, uh to a lesser extent, you know Georgia, a lot of those big programs in the th- in the South. I think Stubblefield is—you bring that guy in to help you build up your recruiting base in the rest of Big Ten country. I mean, we've seen Penn State, you know, dip into places like Indiana, Illinois, Ohio a lot uh, to get those kind of players. But Stubblefield's a name a lot of high school coaches and people are gonna recognize just because of the caliber of player he was. Was he there for their uh, for their Rose Bowl run? Was he on that team? I believe he would have been.
0: Um, if you keep talking, I can check.
1: Okay. Um, so assuming he was, because I, I think that was '02, if I if I remember correctly. So that's going to be a name a lot of coaches are going to recognize. And as as Penn State starts to become more of a, a national brand, this he's a really great guy to help them establish themselves um, kind of throughout the Midwest. So that's you know the Columbus area. I mean, obviously you're always going to play second to Ohio State there, but you can go in there and you can win some battles there. Uh, the Detroit area, Chicago, you know, pretty much all those major hubs where we see. Elite level athletes come out of that aren't Florida or Texas. I think when he gets settled and when he starts to build a track record as an uh, an established coach, I think we can see a lot more success there for Penn State.
0: So he was on the the two thousand. It was the two thousand season, the two thousand one Rose Bowl that was, was when Purdue went. Um, he was a freshman, so he okay. didn't he didn't play a role on the team, but he was on the team.
1: Okay, I mean that's still something that he can he can pitch to high school coaches, saying that he knows what it takes to get a school like Purdue, no less, to that
0: elite level. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's definitely an interesting hire. It's not one that I think most people would have guessed would be the choice uh, a week ago, but for the most part, I think Frank, I know the recent wide receiver coach history is a little shaky, but I think Franklin has earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to hiring coaches. He's, his percentage is pretty high. Um, and I, I guess part of that depends on how you feel about Ricky Ronnie as an offensive coordinator. But regardless, I, I would wager to say that it's worth it's worth trusting Franklin until proven, proven otherwise in a case like this.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and a big thing for me here has to be I remember um after Jared Parker arrived on campus and it was actually during spring ball at one of the media availabilities. K.J. Hamler said a big thing he likes about working with Parker was that he played the position in college. So I think that does go a long way into into something recruits want to see and players think that not that the guys who don't have played the position don't have the same kind of knowledge but there is a different way to coach it when you have that kind of experience. So I think getting a guy who was a very successful receiver at this level can go can go a really long way for developing players.
0: Yeah, for sure. And with with the struggles that Penn State's receiving unit has had over the past few years, it's it's come down some pretty Fundamental things like catching the football and being sharp in and out of routes, I think they would really benefit from having a good teacher there. Recruiting is never it's never a one coach deal. It's never going to be the type of thing where there is like the receiver coach is responsible for getting all the receivers. It, that's not how it is every single every single recruit that they talk to is going to talk to their position coach, yes, but they're also going to be very involved talking to the head coach if it's somebody they want. They're going to talk to the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator. They're going to talk to the guy whose zone they kind of are in. Like, every all the coaches on staff have an area that they focus on. It's really more than a one-person effort. So if, if Stubblefield can prove to be a good teacher the even if he's not some superstar ace recruiter the rest of the staff can help with that so i i tend to think that he'll i i think he'll be perfectly fine as a recruiter penn state is never going to struggle getting talent especially at their wide receiver position they're going to be able to bring in blue chip players i think they'll be just fine
1: yeah i'm not too i'm not too concerned overall a promising stat um that i'll drop in here real quick so Miami's uh Miami's offense was was something this year. It was definitely quite something. They definitely had one. Um, but uh, if you go back and look at the stats, Penn State had just two receivers, um, catch at least twenty balls last year, and one of them was KJ Hamler, who caught like fifty-two. Everyone was Jahan, who I think had twenty-seven last year. Miami had four receivers who caught at least twenty balls in a in just an atrocious offense. So he does have he does a good job at making sure enough guys have the talent and the ability to get open. So I think that's something that should be really encouraging for fans to look at and something for uh for Kirk Shiraka to want to go ahead and, and have a good base to work off of that he has that kind of track record at, at what was an atrocious offensive scheme last year.
0: Yeah. Certainly was. Um changing gears here. It wasn't all, Shout wasn't out all Tate good Martell. news. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't all good news. For Penn State in terms of bringing players in or bringing coaches in this week, uh, because defensive end Daniel Joe D- Daniel Jones Daniel Joseph decided to enter the oh, transfer he lost portal. Lost Daniel and... Jones to the transfer portal and the Giants. That's a shame. <laughs> he will enter the transfer portal and will uh, look to be a grad transfer somewhere. Uh, somebody who you know he he didn't pan out to what he. What it was thought he could be, he was a former four-star recruit. Um, if you talk to uh, Matt DeBear, also known as Bad Matt, um, you don't know that he Daniel Joseph's highlight high school highlight film is some of the, his personal favorites. It is pretty fun to watch, um, but never never quite panned out the way that it was thought he could. He was a solid rotational player. Uh, he had what he had one and a half sacks this year, seven tackles. He was part of the third pairing at defensive end. Definitely somebody that would have been nice to have as depth in 2020, but it you know it there it could be far worse as far as players departing. Hopefully he finds a place where he gets a chance to get some more playing time and shine. But you know Penn State's defensive line depth definitely took a little bit of a hit here.
1: Yeah, Penn State they're still pretty well off at defensive end, especially with uh, some NFL draft news we'll get into in a second. Um, it stinks that we lose a Canadian off the roster. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, you hate to see that happen um but no I hope I hope he ends up finding a place where he can contribute right away and that uh, obviously he's a grad transfer so he of course is what he's going to try to find um but best of luck to him I think Penn State at, at defensive end is pretty well off especially considering the emergence of some young guys like uh like Jason Owe and um Adisa Isaac uh, that we saw towards the latter half of last year so best of luck to him wish it would have worked out but definitely something I think a lot of us saw coming also very surprised this is the only one we've had so far the only player to answer the transfer portal so far has been uh, has been Daniel Joseph, to our knowledge. So, that's a uh, that's an yes. encouraging
0: sign. And it has meant for a much uh, a much quieter year in our mentions on Twitter about how the ship is falling apart, which is nice. Row the boat. <laughs> Speaking of row the boat, let's take a quick detour here and talk about the NFL draft. Actually, it's not even that much of a detour, since we're going to talk about it in a second. Did you see the news about uh, the way the draft will be formatted this year in Las Vegas?
1: Yes, and I and I love it more than anything in the world. I love I love the fact that the NFL draft is like we've got to go to all these football, you know, pro football obsessed cities. Like last year, they were in Nashville. You know, when I think when I think of Tennessee football, I think mm-hmm. of I think of NFL fans, and now they're in Vegas, and they have this weird like boat, barge, life raft, canoe, whatever you want to call it. And are they going to bring out each individual player across, like, a boat? Like, they're like they're going on Survivor? Is that how we're doing sure it? Sure sounds like it. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. Do, can I ask you a very important question? Yeah. Do you think any player is going to come out wearing floaties? And if yes, who do you think it is?
0: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I mean, if, if you're going to ask me which my pick for who's going to do something weird, it would probably be Joe Burrow. Oh, could you imagine if Joe Burrow came up in like a Hawaiian shirt and and like
1: a snorkel? And <laughs> then he goes and then he has to gonna... go to
0: Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> somebody was asking who's going to be the one to jump out of the boat and somebody said Joe Burrow and I 100% agree with that. I think it's going to be Will Muschamp because he got lost trying to find somewhere else and he's <laughs> wandering into the bottom of a boat. I also would be really interested in cuz you know there there's going to be some sort of delay factor here, right? Like they're going to announce and I guess I don't know. Exa- I don't know how far this <laughs> this water transport needs to travel to get the players to the stage, but there is going to be some sort of delay between the pick being announced. Guy gets on the boat, travels to the stage, gets off the boat, then gets his jersey, does his pictures, all that stuff. I think it would be well worth the time to invest in some sort of. Uh, some sort of like legitimate little barge with some sort of covering over it. So the way the pick is announced is just somebody emerging from the boat onto the stage already with the Jersey in hand. So they, they have their whole little Jersey creation set up in this little barge. I think that'll really take things up a notch. What do you think? the uh, What do you think the odds are that,
1: um, when the Giants go up there, because it's a it's boat themed we're gonna have to look at the picture of Odell Beckham and all those guys on that boat from a couple this years ago. This is true. We're gonna have and who do you want to drive the boat? Aside from, aside from Kodak.
0: Ooh. Uh, well, I I did I did take to Twitter to make the joke that it can't be P.J. Fleck because the guys will never get to the stage because he can't stop rowing. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Ooh man. I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about that. It's
1: gotta be there's gotta be. Like you've gotta like cut to somebody like inside that thing. Like, is that
0: Miles Garrett's punishment? Do you keep on going <laughs> with that? Uh, there's a lot of layers. We gotta explore this more. I mean, or is it is it Eli because he wasn't invited to the, oh, to the whole job? It Giants should be season. Eli.
1: Oh, it should be Eli Manning driving the boat.
0: Wow. What name an NFL player you think is most likely to crash the boat? Oh man. Most
1: likely to crash the boat, Kirk Cousins. I don't know why. I don't know. I just think Kirk Cousins is probably bad at at driving boats. Is it driving I boats? I don't I'm think call it driving wrong. boats.
0: I'm gonna go with Kirk Cousins. I I can't I can't think of a an argument against that. So I'm gonna roll with you there, Kirk Cousins. That's a good one. Speaking of the NFL draft, Penn State with the uh, with the official what did it go? I think it went. Uh, I think the list was made officially official today, today yes. being Tuesday morning. Yep, 90, uh, 99 of,
1: players uh, under Quasman yes. were granted special eligibility to enter the 2020 NFL Draft.
0: Yes, and only two Penn Staters appeared on that list, uh, those being Ytor Matos and K.J. Hamler, uh, who actually I saw another mock draft today with both of them in the first round again. It seems like Hamler's really picking up some steam a little bit here, and he's going to test really well, so that, that'll be pretty interesting to watch. Yeah, these
1: are, these are Dwight Galt. Prod- prodigies prodigies yes. whatever it is they're not going to hurt their stock at the NFL draft
0: no of course not and we'll we'll talk more about what we think of KJ Hamler as a pro-, pro 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 prospect when we get closer there but two names that were not on that list of underclassmen declaring for the draft were Shaka Tony and Lamont Wade who are now both uh uh, still nothing necessarily official from either of them, but uh, who will now be returning to Penn State in 2020, which is huge news for that defense because that is a starting defensive end and a starting safety slash uh, nickel corner slash lion slash whatever the hell they call it at this point. Ooh, lion. I want <laughs> put him in on offense. I love that. <laughs> hey, he was a great running back in high school. He could. Him and Micah running back. Him up. and Micah. Oh, man. Give me a goal line package where... Lamont's Will the Levis fullback. takes th- Will Levis takes the snap. He has an option with Lamont Wade and Micah is a fallback in front. I think you just described 2004. <laughs> oh, goodness. That would be that'd be something. But yes. So Tony Tony and Wade back uh, really big news for this Penn State defense, because while they have a ton of returning starters and returning talent on offense, defense is not quite the same story. Of course, the defense does rotate a lot more, so those guys have a, a lot of uh, experience, even though they weren't starters. But to have those two back in uh, for one more round in 2020 is really big news. Yeah, by my count, uh, that puts them at five returning defensive starters. So you have
1: Micah, you have um, Antonio Shelton, you have Shaka, you have Lamont, and then you have TCF. Um, yep. You can put P.J. Mustapha in there. He was basically a co-starter with uh, with Antonio Shelton. But that, that's huge for a defense that, is going to be on the younger side, not exactly inexperienced, but uh having two seniors like that who who played at a really high level, especially Lamont Wade towards the trail end of the year and making some big plays, I think that's going to be huge for uh, for making sure this team is able to live up to its full potential. Because not that Pensac doesn't have a lot of talent along the defensive line, but Shaka back uh, even with the, with the Joseph transfer helps to helps to cover up a lot of sins. And then in the secondary, um, Jaquan Brisker is going to be a first-time starter, who, who did play a limited role as a Juco transfer, so the, the D1 game is still pretty new to him, so having Lamont back is going to go a long way. And then Jonathan Sutherland, who I think is really good, it, it's good that you can kind of work him in there a little bit slower than you normally would have to, um, where he would have to you know go in feet first.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, I, and while I, I don't typically like to comment as much on whether or not I think guys made the right decision because the right decision can mean many different things for many different players. Because even if you, even if you only make an NFL team as an undrafted free agent, that is a quite a nice payday that you're making right, right away. There um, can always fall back on what you did in school and continue to get your degree and all that. But as far as just pure NFL potential is concerned, I do think these two both made good decisions. I think Tony, is somebody who I could very easily have seen being drafted this year, but I think if an, with another year at Penn State, where he really is the really is going to be the one that's relied on to be uh, put up some big some big numbers on that defensive line, regardless of whether or not he ends up being the brightest star on that line, because Jason Owe looks like he's ready to just burst out. I think it'll be good for him just to continue to improve. Uh, He made a lot of strides last year as a run defender, and I think that's something that he can continue to get better at and just continue to become a more well-rounded defensive player in general. And then Lamont Wade, it seemed every year, the more the NFL inches towards becoming like college football offensively, essentially moving to the spread, to the RPO, to... You know, I mean, we saw it with Baltimore this year. Uh, we, we know that the Los Angeles Rams, the San Francisco 49ers, the Arizona Cardinals are all running these very, these very college-feeling schemes. The more that the NFL goes in that direction, the more places the NFL has for guys like Lamont Wade, who maybe don't have one true position but they can fill several roles if you look at guys at Jabril Peppers who just had an excellent season with the Giants he's finally kind of settled in there if you look at guys like Isaiah Simmons who's projected to be a top 10 pick this year he he really he doesn't have a he doesn't have a position he can play everywhere he's very much a tweener and while he's not necessarily the not not necessarily the best prospect at any defensive position his versatility is what makes him so valuable and that's kind of where we're at with Lamont Wade at this point because he's shown that he can be a pretty good deep safety he has great ball skills we know that he can go up and make a play on the ball where he also showed improvements this year in the run game we saw what he can do as far as forcing turnovers in that Ohio State game forced three fumbles Uh, we know that he can cover guys in the slot Chill, doesn't think those should count at all, uh, but we know he can cover guys in the slot. He's proven to be very versatile. I think another year of showing that versatility could do him really well as far as his draft prospects.
1: Shaka's going to be a star. I know you just went on a little tangent about Lamont Wade, but Shaka's going to be an absolute superstar. I think he's going to be so good. He, he really he, could. He could be. He could be fantastic. I think he's going to be. Uh, he's going
0: to play out of his mind. I think he can earn second team All Big Ten honorees. I think he can be that good. Yeah, there's really nothing to suggest that he won't be. He's only gotten better every year. It's he's really for me the thing that the thing that was so impressive about him last year for me was the way he defended the run because we always knew he could rush the passer. He was a third down specialist as a sophomore, but what he did this year to take strides as a total defender was really impressive.
1: Yeah, he's going to be really good. So, hey, go defense. I hope. You are even better than you were last year at getting to the quarterback because you were still pretty good, but you went away for uh, for a couple of weeks. But hopefully, uh, Shaka coming back means that
0: we're going to see a return to the norm. And Tony and Wade, of course, joined the rest of the Penn State uh, players who had a choice to declare for the draft and did not, those being center Michael Mennett, right tackle Will Fries, tight end Pat Frymouth, and who am I forgetting? Oh, and Checker quarterback Jordan Castro Fields. And kicker Jordan Stout, who had a chance to actually had a contract in front of him that said if you sign this, you will be the number one pick, and he said no. I need to kick more touchbacks. He's going to. So he's going to punt too. He is going to punt too. We're going to talk a lot about Jordan Stout this offseason and what he can do.
1: I have like I have a love letter to Jordan Stout, just just waiting for me to actually sit down and
0: finish it that I'm really excited about. Oh, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Just wait till we get to Love Letter Month. <laughs> oh, god. it's going to be a good one. Oh, god. <laughs> All right, right. and then to not close out today's podcast, because we still have something coming after this, but the meat of today's podcast is going to be breaking... The main course is going to be breaking down the all defensive selections for the decade. Last week we broke down the um, all decade offense. You can catch that podcast. I was posted last week. You can also visit the site and check out all those articles just as you can do with these defensive players and specialists. But what we are going to do now is take a little bit of a deep dive into them, talk about them a little more, whether or not we agree with the selections, how we voted all that jazz. So Matt, let's hear about those defensive ends
1: yes so we started out our voting with defensive ends so honorable mention we had Jack Crawford uh, a guy who kind of bounced around between defensive tackle and defensive end and he's a Brit so that's very exciting so hey good for him Uh, number five we had Dion Barnes uh, the 2012 Big Ten freshman of the year a a three-year contributor here number four we had Garrett Sickles number three we have Sharif Miller Number two, we have Etor Gross Matos. Matos, I can never learn how to say that. And number one, obviously, we had Carl Nassib. So a lot of really, really talented edge rushers, but uh, I think it, it was pretty clear who the who the two best were.
0: Yeah, and I think it it's some. I think some people might look at this and say, "Well, first of all, there's probably some people that looked at this and wondered what our voting policies were, and you know, it's <laughs> it's gonna be different every time we open a new Google form, but." I think the fact that Carl Nassib finished atop this list, despite only really having one season where he was the guy, I don't, I don't think he played a very high percentage of snaps at all before his year as a starter. He did not. But, but what he did in that one year as a starter was just so, so dominant and so far and away the best season we've seen from a defensive end this decade and really in a long time before that. I think that I think his spot at number one is well earned.
1: Yeah, I think in, including defensive tackles, I think he was the most dominant defensive lineman in this decade, uh, just based on that one season alone, because absolutely nobody nobody could stop him. He was he was absolutely fantastic.
0: And it's unfortunate that Gross Matos had to finish second on this list because of him, because his in, his career has been really consistent and just really really impressive overall. I think that the thing that the thing that people who are just learning about who Gross Matos is, as they kind of dive into NFL draft profiles and all that jazz, is when when you think about edge defenders, the first thing you think about is sacks. And Gross Matos was great at getting to the quarterback, but the value that he provided as a run defender and just as a just just as a defender behind the line of scrimmage in general, he was just really really difficult to get past. And I think that's the thing that was so impressive about him.
1: Yeah, a big thing for me uh, that I'll establish now in my voting was I think versatility as a football player goes a long way. And Edo Matos was such a good football player that it, they could shift him inside to play defensive tackle, and he didn't really drop off. So I had him at number two. I, I did have Nassim at number one, but that that versatility went went a long way, and uh, he was number two in my opinion by. By a wide margin, that versatility I think is something that's so rare to find in a football player, especially one that young. He he started doing that, you know, towards the tail end of his true freshman season. So so for the staff to have that much confidence in a guy like that is just let you know that he's a really special player.
0: Yeah, and I know I was talking with um, somebody that I used to write with on the Seahawks side at SB Nation. Uh, he's now the head NFL writer at the Ringer, Danny Kelly. He is f- full into his. Uh, NFL draft preparations at this point, checking out player profiles, watching film on all those guys. And he kind of asked me for the, the inside scoop on gross Matos, what he should be looking for and all that. And I told him that there's, there's no amount of tape you can watch on him that will really tell the true story because he is, he has still only just barely begun scratching the surface of how good he can be. No, yeah, he has no idea what he's is, doing. He has no, he has no idea what he's limitless. doing. Limitless. He just gets by dudes at this point by, with his length, with his strength and with his speed. If he gets the, when he, now if, when he gets the NFL, when he has a first round pick, when he has the chance to just focus on football all the time and gets a chance to work on pass rushing moves against NFL offensive tackles all the time, he is going to be downright scary. Yeah. He's going to be, he, he could end up being the best of this bunch as
1: as a pro player.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Easily. Um, and I think a guy like Sharif Miller has a chance to do some big things in the NFL as well. Obviously, he's been uh, hurt. Uh, did he get hurt before the season started? I don't, yeah, I don't think he
1: played. In, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I don't think he played in any regular season games. I don't, actually, I'm not sure if he played in any. Pre- he got hurt really early on. So yeah. take it but as he, kind of he's your, another your, guy. your Ben Simmons, your pseudo redshirt rookie season.
0: Yes, he's he's another guy who had a. A really strong finish to his Penn State career it was really consistent. I, th- I think he has a chance to be really good in the NFL as well. Um, as far as the rest, I mean, D- uh, Deion Barnes is a guy that... Man, I love Deion uh, Barnes. I did too, but he he's a guy who really could have and should have done more production-wise.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. He, his 2012 season was great, uh, but he he never really took a noticeably large step forward after that.
0: Yeah, and to be fair, he was part of that group that um, was, you know, when they started their recruiting process, being recruited by the Joe Paterno staff, then then ended up being recruited by the Bill O'Brien staff, and then all of a sudden James Franklin came in. So they they dealt with a lot of adversity, those guys did, on and off the field. And to kind of go through the mindset of three different coaching staffs is a big deal. So it's it's hard to know how much that really affected them. Uh, But, you know, I think Penn Penn State has proven – that they know how to produce defensive ends, whether it was with Larry Johnson or Sean Spencer or oh, goodness. I don't even remember who the defensive ends coach or the defensive line coach was under Bill O'Brien. Do you? Wasn't that, wasn't that still LJ? That was oh still no. LJ. Yeah. yeah. Duh. That was still LJ. Yeah. That's why, that's why I forgot. Cause I already said his name. Um, yeah, I think, I think this is a really, really talented group. And I think this is also a group that when we do this again in 10 years, man, there's going to be some, some true superstar talent on that there's list. there's gonna
1: be some ballers on this
0: list tell me about defensive tackles
1: all right so sh- shifting inside here defensive tackles so at our honorable mention we had kevin givens um which i am upset about again uh versatility goes a long way for me i had kevin givens at number five so yeah, i don't mention not that far off so at number five we had robert windsor uh, a guy who came on really strong towards the tail end of his career but a, a four-year contributor at number four, we had Jordan Hill, uh, a guy who was really underrated, I think, for a lot of his Penn State career. Uh, number three, we have Austin Johnson, who is responsible for probably my favorite touchdown in Beaver Stadium. Oh, no, that's a lie. The block field goal happened. My second favorite touchdown uh, I have witnessed live at Beaver Stadium. Uh, number two, we had Devin Still. And then number one, we have Anthony Zettel. And if you want to talk about versatility, man, did Anthony Zettel have a lot of that.
0: You, you can do no better in terms of finding a— tree-tackling, water-bottle-kicking superstar 69 than wearing. Anthony Zettel. 69-wearing Anthony. Anymore. Both in college, or uh, with the Lions, and didn't he... Oh, actually, no. I don't think he does wear it with the Niners. He's, like, number
1: 92, and I'm really upset ah. about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, well. Still, Anthony Zettel, total stud. I think absolutely deserves to be um, on the top of this list. I will contend that I think Devin Still's 2010 season, or... Hmm, no, twenty eleven season. Twenty eleven season, I think, is the most impressive single season by a defensive tackle in this past decade. But I uh, kind of the entirety of what Anthony Zettel did over his career. Both as a defensive end and as a defensive tackle, like you said, being unbelievably versatile, shifting inside outside, uh, dude had what four interceptions in his career? He they dropped him back into coverage pretty routinely. Yeah, could you imagine? And he a, 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 held his a, a own.
1: Current defensive tackle on this Penn State r- roster registering four, not even like batted up in the line, like you know, just like really really no, great. No legitimate. Luck. Like, they interceptions. dropped him back in pass coverage, and he legitimately confused dudes.
0: Yeah, he they're... There are going to be a lot of guys that come through Penn State and play a really high level defensive tackle. I don't know if we'll ever see anybody do quite what Anthony Zettel was able to do in quite the ways he was able to do it.
1: He also wore a mask one time on Halloween uh, during the press conference after he beat <laughs> Illinois and just talked about it, like just spoke the entire thing like it was no big deal and that he was totally normal. It was hysterical. Find that video yeah. on YouTube if you can. It's very funny.
0: Very, uh, very normal. Very, def- definitely no, definitely not a weird guy at all.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. So number three, Austin Johnson, um, really, really athletic guy. Um, really came on strong again towards the tail end of his career, and uh, was a big part of this uh, of this Titans defense that had a had a pretty good run here.
0: Yeah, I think the the thing that defined the Penn State defensive tackles over this past decade it wasn't necessarily their individual efforts, but it was kind of the. The number of high-powered defensive tackle duos that we've seen—I uh, know these. Neither of these guys ended up making the list, but Parker Cuthran and Curtis Cuthran, being the most uh, recent example, just a just a, a really really nice pairing of guys on the interior, and I think the that's Cothrain. something that Penn State has. The Cuthran.
1: Oh, we should have called it <laughs> the Cuthran.
0: Oh, our oh. I called them the Catherine every time I spoke no, about them. No, but like, like
1: it's like you're raining. Like it's not like oh, not like like, the, that. not like like precipitation, but like you're a king. Oh man, we missed an opportunity mm. there.
0: We'll have to we'll have to go back and edit old posts. Run it back. Yeah, uh, but between those two, before them, you had the the Anthony Zettel and Austin Johnson combination. I'll talk about my, that more in a second. The Devin Still Jordan Hill combination. The Kevin Givens Robert Windsor combination. They. They've always done well, the last ten years, they've done a great job of pairing defensive tackles who were both dominant in their own way, but had very different skill sets and they've just melded them together in such brilliant ways. And for me, I think the prime example of it is Anthony Zettel and Austin Johnson. Because Zettel was the you know, he was the pass rushing beast, the guy that would do whatever, drop into coverage, move to the outside, whatever. And Austin Johnson was the guy who was just always going to do, on every single play, exactly what you wanted him to do. Did he want him to eat up two guys in the middle of the line? Sure, he could do that. Were they going to throw a screen pass? Oh, there's Austin Johnson sprinting out to get to the running back or the wide receiver before any other defender can get to them. It's just he did exactly what he was supposed to do, and he was so, so good in his role. I I will never get over the number of times that he recognized a screen pass was coming before anybody else in the stadium. It just it blew my mind, honestly.
1: Yeah, he was he was real good. Also that high step on his touchdown uh fumble return yes. will live on forever.
0: I do really love another guy that didn't end up making this list, Daquan Jones. I do really love that he and Daquan Jones are still together. In Tennessee.
1: Isn't it insane that Daquan Jones didn't even get our honorable mention slot? Like, that's how good defensive tackles were
0: over the past and 10 years. Da- And Daquan Jones is currently starting for a team that just missed a Super Bowl. Yeah,
1: I- insane.
0: I, I said this last time. I really, really enjoyed this process because I had so much fun reminiscing on some of these players. I, I don't know if I've had as much fun up until Micah Parsons. I don't know if I've ever, ever had as much fun watching a defensive player at Penn State as I did Austin Johnson wow he was a treat he was an absolute treat he oh man he just honestly it's it's the screen thing I, I could not get over the screen thing he diagnosed those plays in an instant and it just blew my mind every time I saw it speaking of exciting talented defensive players let's move on to the prime position in Penn State history. It's, uh, some would say it's Keystone position. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about the linebackers.
1: All right. So at linebackers, uh, honorable mention went to Jason Cabinda, um, four-year contributor, uh, three-year starter, uh, a guy who was really the heart and soul of that Penn State defense in this this new Penn State revival, let's call it. Uh, So number five, we have uh, Gerald Hodges, uh, obviously uh, more well-known for his punt-returning specialties, um, but a really good linebacker. That was a joke. Nick, you didn't laugh. I'm really sad about it. Um, I,
0: I didn't think it was a joke.
1: Was he that? Was he? Nah, well, <laughs> nothing here, nothing. all right. Number four, we have Mike hole, which I'm really upset about. I had Mike hole number two on my ballot. Mike hole was so dominant his last season that he, and for a guy, his size, Mike hole was one of my all time favorite players. So good for Mike Michael for making this list. I think he should be higher. Uh, number three, we have Michael Motti. Um, what Motti means to this program is, is probably way more than any other any other defensive player or offensive player. Zordich is up there, but Motti was really the heart and soul of that of that 2012 team, and a, a big reason why Penn State was able to to bounce back from what it did it was because of his leadership. Uh, number two, we have Brandon Bell, and Brandon Bell was fantastic, and I'm really happy he got a lot of love on this thing because when he was healthy, especially the 2016 season, he was he was fantastic and number 1 uh goes to Micah Parsons a guy who with how good of a season he could have this year could very well be very high on this list for next decade as well
0: i think the thing that made this voting so difficult was that it is really really easy to make a case for every single one of these guys as number 1
1: yeah i would i would 100% agree
0: i mean if it seriously like go go down the line micah parsons look i mean easily Maybe not easily, but it's pretty clear that he plays at a different speed than everybody else. And I think, based on pure talent, he is far and away the best linebacker of the decade. Brandon Bell was incredibly consistent. Again, a guy who could do everything. He could drop back in coverage. He could rush the passer. He was a tackle machine. Really easy to make a case for him, number one. Michael Motty. Also, um,
1: Brandon Bell did have yeah. the uh, the
0: I.O. cheer chant that we got. I-O. That is iconic, so points to him there. yes yes that is absolutely a factor as well because if we're going to talk about what michael monty meant off the field you got to talk about what brandon bell meant there are very few people that captured the attention of that locker room and captivated players and coaches alike the way that brandon bell did you could you could tell how respected he was by everybody in that room every single time he spoke
1: oh yeah big time
0: yeah Uh, michael monty like you mentioned as good of a football player as he was on the field, I think his impact will be even greater off the field um, for as long as as long as long we're talking about Penn State football. I, he, he was a fantastic football player on the field, and I think had he been able to stay healthy for the entirety of his career, then it would be really difficult not to put him number one. But the unfortunate fact is that he did often, he did pick up several injuries over his career. Um, but, you know, when he was on the field, I think somebody... Somebody tweeted at me when we released this list and talked about how the thing they'll always remember with Micah with Mike, Micah Micah with Michael Maadi is the ferocity and the intensity that he played with, and that's how always the word they think of when they think of Maadi is intensity. And I absolutely agree. Everything he did was at full speed. Everything he did was full effort. He was a he was a pleasure to watch.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very rare that you see a guy be so well respected that Penn State's willing to change its uniform for him. Um, so he, his play on the field was fantastic, but it's really what he did off the field that I think is, he's really going to be remembered for.
0: And then the, the kind of the last thing I want to touch on here. I, I love Gerald Hodges. I think Gerald Hodges goes very close to Parsons in terms of just pure athleticism. Mike Hall, I I referenced this before with Devin Still's single season being the most impressive for a defensive tackle this decade. I think Mike Hall's, what was it? 2013,
1: 138 tackles that season. Yeah
0: i for me his twenty thirteen season is the most is the single most impressive season of any Penn state defender in the past decade he He was a missile he was a missile on the football field. You could not escape him he was i i really i really don't have the adjectives to describe what it was like watching Michael Col play football
1: yeah he was he was absolutely unreal yeah he was he was great so really, really great guy, i think. You can make an argument for a lot of these guys, but I think Mike Hole is the guy we're going to look back on and say that he was the one who really – he played under Franklin. So I guess – I'm sorry. Excuse me, it was his 2014 season that he had that really dominant season. He okay. was the guy who started this new wave of linebackers under Brent Pry and uh, and James Franklin.
0: Tell me about the cornerbacks, Matt.
1: Okay. Cornerbacks. Um, A very interesting – Voting uh, process here. Um, so honorable mention went to Christian Campbell, um, one-year starter, four-year contributor, six-one, um, rangy guy. Uh, did get drafted and has bounced around the NFL a little bit. Uh, number five we have Trevor Williams, a, a converted wide receiver. Uh, number four we have Jordan Lucas, who was converted to safety for his senior season, but really made most of his money at corner. Uh, number three we have John Reed, and John Reed actually did get the most first-place votes. Um, there was just a really big, it was a really big discrepancy on where people had John Reed. Uh, number two went to Grant Haley, um, lions scoop it up. Grant Haley will score. Um, and number one, we have Amani Oruwarie, uh, a guy who was really, really great, uh, as a reserve, um, in his redshirt junior season before, uh, really coming into his own as a redshirt senior and, uh, who is currently, uh, probably seeing the most NFL success, I would argue already out of any, out of any Penn State corner this decade.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question because I could. Trevor Williams was a, uh, I think he was a starter for at least two years. Oh, no, that's true. With San Diego, that's true. I think he he was he was one of, he was a PFF darling a little bit. I think he got on a few of those weekly lists. Um, I know Grant Haley was the I think the fifth highest rated rookie corner last year. So, I think I think he has some competition for for that uh, professional that's success fair. bar. I but, forgot
1: about Trevor Williams, how how. He did have those few good seasons out west.
0: Yeah, Uh, but he does. I mean, Urwari does. What he had two interceptions this past year, so he he definitely is is making a making a case for that pretty early on here. I think with this cornerback group, you know, it's I not I don't great. think <laughs> it's not the most impressive list that we've done here, but I think it's a lot of guys who I, th- I think it kind of sh- it aside from John Reed. It illustrates what Penn State has had at cornerback over the years. It's had a lot of guys pressed into action early that maybe early on in their careers, it, it wasn't the best thing for them. But eventually that experience won out over time and eventually it made them better players because I think all of those guys are pretty great examples of um, improvement from year to year. So while it's not the it's not the star studded list that you would hope to see in the secondary, it does speak pretty well, at least to Penn State's ability um, under James Franklin and under Terry Smith to develop those guys.
1: Yeah, I I would definitely agree. I think John Reed could have very easily have fallen into that category, um, but he was able to get away with that redshirt season um, under unfortunate circumstances. Um, But yeah, I think it's all really fair. A lot of these guys did see the field really, really early. Actually, I think. With the exception of Amani, all of these guys did play as true freshmen. Yeah, Campbell did. Williams was a receiver. Uh, Lucas definitely did. Reed did, and Haley did. Yeah, wow, that's a really great, really great catch.
0: Yeah, and I think if, and I again, yeah, Reed Reed's kind of the oddball, right? Because I think most would agree that probably his best season was his 2016 season. Um, Oh, for sure. And he never quite got back to that, and that of course he suffered a. Pretty pretty bad ACL injury, so it's it's understandable. Yeah, had a great cotton ball. It really really had a pretty a pretty strong finish to his <laughs> career. I, I think he'll be someone that does pretty well in the NFL. I concur. And what is this the saf- safeties weren't the most difficult group to vote for, I don't think.
1: No. Safeties safeties were also very interesting. So honorable mention we had uh we had Steven Obang Ajapong, um a guy who was a uh two year contributor status really outplayed his, his two star rating. Uh number five, I would
0: like to I would like to note that I believe I voted for Nick Suke as my number five. You did
1: indeed vote for Nick Suke as number five. You were his lone vote getter. So Ugh. Nick's gotta stick together I guess. Uh, this is very true. Number five we have Troy Apke, uh, a late bloomer, but another converted receiver who turned into a really successful defensive back. Uh number four we have Malik Golden who had a really phenomenal 2016 season I think a lot of people forget about. Uh, Number three, we have Garrett Taylor, Um, by no means the best uh, safety, but a a really consistent presence for a while. Uh, Number two, we have Adrian Amos, Uh, started his career at corner, um, but really came into his own at safety, um, and then went on for a lot of NFL success as a safety. And number one, probably the most fun player, Penn State's, Arguably, ever had uh, Marcus Allen, who was just a heat-seeking missile for four seasons, and I miss him dearly.
0: Yeah, it's the safety group. I think is really, really. I think one of the most fun groups of guys to look back oh, on. Oh my god, yeah. um, Mark. I mean, if if for no other reason than Marcus Allen, you know, he he wasn't perfect. He wasn't great in pass coverage. He he had his fair share of um, unnecessary penalties, but what he did overall in terms of his career numbers and just in terms of the impact and just adding entertainment and adding personality to those, those 2016 and 17 rosters that were known for their personality in that regard. His, his impact was massive.
1: Yeah, no, he was. And and again, you you can say whatever you want about his, his skill set or whatever you want to call it in the passing game. What he was able to do in the box and and as a tackler, I think more than makes up for it. I mean, it's very rare that you see a safety willing to play like that, and he was. Oh, uh, there. We may never see another safety willing to play as physical a brand of football as was what we've seen out of Marcus Allen.
0: Yeah, I'd agree, and I think there were definitely people that were upset that we had Adrian Amos second on this list. I think part of that was because he didn't play his whole career at safety. Um, he was very good there. I, I, I would argue that he was actually better as a cornerback while in college. Obviously, the perception around that is probably a little different now because he has succeeded so so wonderfully in the NFL. Um, but I, I think he's a, Adrian Amos is a guy who it, it took it takes a special player like Marcus Allen to be ranked ahead of him. And that doesn't—that's not a dig on Amos. I think it's more—it's more talking about Allen. But Adrian Amos was a phenomenal player in his own right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think he has a legitimate case to be top five at both safety and corner.
0: And now, Matt, the most important voting that we did in this process—tell se- us about the snapper
1: these... voting that just you and I did.
0: Well, no, that that—that's the fullback voting. Oh, that's true. Tell us about these specialists. Yes.
1: So honorable mention here was Anthony Farah, a guy who kind of. Maybe, uh, maybe we're going to see a repeat of this with Jordan Stout this year, but he pulled double duties as, a, as both a kicker and a punter, um, but definitely uh, was, I would say, a better punter uh, than he was a kicker, and that's not to say he was a bad kicker. By any sense of the imagination, he was pretty good. Number five, we have K.J. Hamler uh, for what he did in the return game. Number four, we have Tyler Davis, uh, former soccer player. Uh, number three, we have Sam Ficken, uh, current New York New York Jet legend. Uh, number two, we have Saquon uh, for his kick return ability, and number one, uh, the prince that was promised himself, Blake Gillikin.
0: It it's hard to really quantify how important Blake Gillikin has been to this program over the last four years. If because you don't after understand he- <laughs> what
1: Blake Gillikin means, then you haven't been a Penn State fan very long, because punting was so bad for so long, and then Blake came in, and straight up he could
0: have punted the ball,
1: even a little bit horribly, and we would have been ecstatic.
0: Yeah. I mean when you consider the quality of punter that we had before him, when we're going about the the Daniel Pascarellos and the Chris Gulas and the Alex Butterworths I'm sure they're all great guys not great punters and Gillikin was just even in his down years was so consistent with what he was able to do and you know he he had his few a few shanks here and there as every punter does but what he was able to provide the special teams unit in terms of consistency was just so far and away so much better than what they had had in the years previous, and it made an absolutely massive, massive difference.
1: Yeah, and served as the holder for a couple of years, so just a really, yeah. really important presence on special teams for a, for a long time. He is going to be... He might be one of the biggest uh, losses we have from this offseason.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, Sam Ficken and Tyler Davis, Uh, I... I, I mean, if you've ever read anything that I've written or listened to me, you probably have an idea or at least have a, some sort of semblance of an idea of how much I love Sam Ficken. I do think three is the right place for him. I, I This is actually, I think, exactly how I put my voting because I think what Saquon Barkley provided as a kick returner was just... I mean, it, it's, it's like he was as a running back. It was a touchdown waiting to happen, and I think when you have that kind of threat back there that he has to rank highly there, but... It should not be understated how equally as important as Gilkin that Ficken and Tyler Davis were to this team because having consistent field goal kickers, especially early on in the Franklin era when points were at a premium, to know that you were going to get points when you were in field goal range was a really, really big thing for this team.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. They were they were both really really good. Shout out Joey Julius. Um, he should be yes. on, he should be on here. Uh, hope every hope he's doing well shout out to him
0: and you know there it is that is the roar lions roar all decade team we posted the uh we posted the what would amount to the actual team if they lined up on the field today do you want to run through that yes i
1: have it right here so quarterback uh if you were here if you listened last week you know this already but i'll go through one more time quarterback trace mcsorley running back saquon barkley wide receiver alan robinson chris godwin and dashawn hamilton Important to note that McSorley, Barkley, and Robinson were all unanimous number one selections. The only three unanimous selections. Uh, Tight end, we have Mike Kosicki. And then along the offensive line, we have Stefan Wisniewski, Donovan Smith, John Urschel, Connor McGovern, and Ryan Bates. Um, And then over to defense. So uh, the defensive ends, we have Carl Nassib and Etor Grossmatos. I am so sorry, opposing quarterbacks, because that is terrifying. And (laughs) at defensive tackle, we have Anthony Zettel and Devin Still. That's real good. Uh, linebacker, Micah Parsons, Brandon Bell, and Michael Motti. Uh, I legitimately think teams might average 27 rushing yards a game against that front seven. Uh, at corner, we have Amani, Oruwarie, and Grant Haley. And at safety, we have Marcus Allen, Adrian Amos. And then on special teams, uh, Sam Ficken is our kicker. Blake Gillikin is our punter and holder. I'm choosing that right now. I'm going off script. And uh, a kick returner, Saquon. And a punt returner, we have K.J. Hamler. So that is a phenomenal all decade team full of a lot of guys who have seen who had a ton of talent at the college game and have gone on to a lot of success at the next level
0: yeah that is that's quite the squad that would be quite a formidable opponent for anybody and i would wager that if we if we had the wherewithal or the ability to do all decade all decade teams for the rest of the big 10 the rest of the big country whoever i have a feeling that penn state's team would stack up quite well
1: yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Penn State can go toe-to-toe with pretty much any team outside of, like, Alabama, maybe, because they were really good in the early 2000s, early, early 2010s. Yeah. Real quick, yeah. off-topic here, I posted this question in the forum over there on com under the forum tab. Who do you think has been the best assistant coach of the past decade? And I'll, I'll go both hmm. coordinator and position coach. So I I said it's got to be Jomo. Also, shout out to Jomo, new Oregon offensive coordinator, uh, stay up for some Pack Twelve after dark, for Penn State fans, and watch watch a really great guy coach some fun football. So uh, for coordinator, I'd say Moorhead, and then position coaches, I'd have to go with either Gaddis or Spencer.
0: Yeah, I, I I mean, I think the obvious choice is Moorhead for a coordinator. As far as a position coach, hmm, I think you could make an argument for the considering the early part of the decade for Larry Johnson. I. I feel like I could probably make an argument for Brent Pry before he was the coordinator. Oh man, that's really tough.
1: Yeah, well, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts over on the forum. Uh, drop drop by, let us know what you think. I think that's a really that's a really fun group think exercise because there's a lot that goes into being an assistant coach at this level, whether that be both player development and recruiting, which is why why I give Gaddis or Spencer. I can't really decide which one yet. I'm leaning towards yeah, Gaddis. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. When you consider the recruiting side of things, that's a big, that's a big deal too. And I think if had he gotten here a few years earlier for that same reason, Jawan Seder would probably be in that conversation. Oh, that's also, that's a good one.
1: So was Charles Huff. Oh wow, there's a lot, a lot of good ones. But yeah, drop by. Let us know what you think.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I think that's about. I think that's about all we have. tonight. I, I, I really enjoyed doing this all all decade series. I'm really glad we did it. Thank you for putting that together, Matt. Um, I, hope, I hope. It was you fun. It to was together. Yeah, I hope you all enjoyed listening to it and reading about it. Uh, we'll probably come up with a, a little more. I have a few other ideas for some all-decade content for the next coming weeks here. It's not like we're not like we're up against timeline or anything. All-decade long offseason still Beaver ahead. Beaver Stadium so. snack
1: foods. Number one, <laughs> all- chicken baskets. <laughs> number two, the pasta salad in the press box, and that's all I know.
0: Mm, number three, the hot chocolate.
1: I never had that. that is
0: the hot chocolate. That was cheaper than a water bottle I w- is cheaper than a water bottle.
1: I was spoiled and I was in the press box for two years. Thanks to, thanks to this lovely website and I got to enjoy yeah. nice, delicious food and
0: the warmth. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Matt, I think that about does it for tonight. Uh, I think when we come back next week, that'll be a good time to start talking about a little bit of a uh, Penn state basketball mixed in with some football stuff. Yes. Um, Shooty hoops so next look forward week. to that. Yeah. Look forward to that. Um, as always please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on itunes on spotify wherever it is you're listening you can catch us on either of those places soundcloud uh, google play uh what else what else did i say Podbean, stitcher. stitcher yeah yeah we're everywhere overcast you can find us everywhere anywhere you listen to podcasts you can find us um, make sure you go ahead and visit Roar Lions Roar and check out all the great content we have on the website as well as the store. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, at RLRblog, on Instagram, at Roar Lions Roar. We're really going to try hard to keep our Instagram more updated going forward, uh, so be sure to be following that. Um, yeah, and everywhere else, everywhere else you can find us. We're in several places on the internet. All of them are just fine. Anything else tonight, Matt?
1: That is all I have. Uh, Instagram, be ready. We're really going to start ramping that up here. Uh, going to start playing around with some new features there. So yeah, make sure you're following. That should be uh, should be something fun for us to work on throughout the off season. Absolutely. Like, like players, podcasters, and bloggers have to have to do things to keep to keep their mind sharp, keep their bodies sharp. And for us, mm. that's experimenting with a like ten year old app that we should have been paying more attention
0: to. Exactly. This Roarlands Roar always on the cutting edge. That's how you <laughs> know us. All right. Let's get out of here. For myself, Nick Polak, for my co-host, Matt Filipovitz, thank you all for listening. Go stage. Go stage.